There's no reason theologically, or to my knowledge, architecturally, why you couldn't use TypeScript ESLint on vanilla JS code, but I don't want to be too certain about whether it's currently advisable or doable today. You heard it here first. Should figure that out. I think it had something to do with the file name extension. It was like, oh, that's not a TypeScript file. I'm not going to lint it. Have you just tried converting to TypeScript? <laughs> no. <laughs> we should support that use case. I almost clicked the drum roll. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. If you're new to the pod, don't forget to subscribe. Head to jsparty.fm for all the ways. And if you're a longtime party animal, thank you. We appreciate you listening. Check out our membership program at changelog.com slash plus plus. Drop the ads, get bonuses like extended episodes, and directly support the show. Thanks to our friends at Fastly for shipping JS Party all around the world to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, you know what time it is. It's party time, y'all. Hoi hoi, JS Party. It's me, Nick Nisi. Welcome to another exciting party with JavaScript or TypeScript, probably in this case. With me today, I have K-Ball. K-Ball, how's it going? Going all right, except my voice is down in scary monster mode today, but that's what you get when you catch a cold. Oh, I love it. Batman. It's reminding me of Batman a lot. Yeah. And that, yeah, you heard was Chris, aka Bones Call. How's it going? I'm fit to get my party on. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And we have a special guest with us today, and that is Josh Goldberg. Josh, how's it going? Hey, I'm so excited. How are you doing? Fantastic. Now that you're here, Woo. we are going to talk about a lot of exciting things, including TypeScript. We should have a, a ringtone, or not a ringtone, a, uh, a tone for TypeScript when that comes up, because I try and bring it up a lot. And we're going to do it a lot on this episode. So if the BMC beats that we just intro to are the JS party tone, like what's going to be the attitude of the TypeScript tones? Is it like more like stuffy in some way or like classical music I'm thinking like abba walking through an empty house i was thinking like an angelic choir sort of deal script <laughs> yeah canon indeed Josh tell us a little bit about yourself sure hello everyone I'm Josh I'm a front-end slash general developer from New York I used to work full-time for code Academy previously Microsoft but now I'm a full-time open source maintainer, contributor person, and as of this week, a textbook author with O'Reilly. I made a book, Learning TypeScript, that's out now that you should all buy several copies of and leave me glowing reviews for. I mostly work around static analysis in the JavaScript ecosystem, so things like TypeScript ESLint, which is the tooling that lets you run ESLint on TypeScript, and then I sometimes contribute to TypeScript also when I have time. So yeah, that's me. Happy to be here. Yeah, and we're very excited to have you here as well. Congrats on the book. That's really exciting. Thank you. Tell us about the process of 
becoming a, an author? Sure. I did not expect to do it. I'm still somewhat shook by the whole thing happening. O'Reilly reached out to me almost exactly a year ago, or a little bit. We started a little more than a year ago because I'd been doing a lot of work around like, conference speaking and my blog and open source contributions. And I was getting involved at Codecademy and their learning TypeScript course, which we did end up releasing. And they wanted a book that can teach people who know JavaScript somewhat, but don't know any sort of types or other languages necessarily, the foundations and fundamentals of TypeScript. And that's pretty much what the book became, a ramp up of what is a type system? Why do you care? What are these angry little squigglies in your editor? And here's <laughs> how to really use that to your, your best advantage. And we are all now as of today, Chris, using it to our best advantage, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. He looked at if this was all going out on video, like that look right there captures Chris's take on TypeScript. <laughs> One of the most sad people I've seen. I like the types, okay? Very fond of the types. Is it just the compilation step that you don't like? Yeah, it's that, and, and it's just like, now I'm not writing JavaScript anymore. Sure you are. So I try to avoid it. With types. Did you do the whole CoffeeScript thing, and did you insist that was different from JavaScript as well? No, I did not. I would not touch that. I've always been a purist. That's respectable. I'm one of those people. I'm very excited for the day when JavaScript has a type syntax built in. Perhaps then you would like TypeScript a little more. <laughs> uh, as I said, I use I like types. I write all the JavaScript and I use all the doc strings and it works great. And I don't have to compile it. And I can get definitions or declaration files if I want to. And yeah, everything works. Super. No TypeScript. Chris, you mostly work on Node stuff, right? So yep. you're not really compiling or anything. I think the, the biggest thing for me, like getting over that hump of not caring about a compilation step was I wanted to use all of the new JavaScript features and I would have to compile those anyway for the front end. So yeah, TypeScript just seemed like a natural, safe way to get a lot of those new features in like a, a curated package. Yeah, well, the newer Node versions have a lot of the fancy syntax and things that you want to use. And so I don't really see much of a need to compile down to like ES5 or anything anymore. So Sure. Yeah. Out of curiosity, do you use any sort of type checking on your JS docs? Like, have you tried running TypeScript in check.js or allow.js mode? No, no, that's how I use it. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. I have, I work on a project called Appium. I don't know. You might've heard of it, but it's just a, uh, it's kind of like Selenium for devices. And slowly just, it's like kind of an older JS code base. And I've just been adding all these doc strings over time. And we've got all this, all these declarations generated and everything. Yeah, it works really well. And like the build fails if the type check fails. So, so you've been a TypeScript developer for a very long time then. And this is your favorite language. I like the types. So draw the line there for me, right? The compilation phase, but like, what else are you including in TypeScript that you don't like that's not the types? Well, why are we talking about this? It's the <laughs> language, like, I don't want to write .ts files. I try to avoid that, okay? But other than that, yeah, we do have a compilation step, but it's, it's Babel, right, in that project. And I know you can make Babel do that, but I haven't really seen the need yet. And, of course, converting a JS code base to TypeScript instead of 
a JS code base with some comments is much more of a heavy lift. But I'm just so accustomed to doing that now that any new module that I write is probably going to just be JavaScript with like CheckJS enabled. That's the real benefit, right? It's just a tool to give you all of these extra features like so that your editor knows more about how to help you correctly. And you're getting that. So we're all in the same family here. And like as part of the build step or whatever, the CI, the build, there is no real build, but like mm-hmm. I just run TSC with no emit. And if it fails, then I screwed up some type some, somewhere. Maybe I want to emit declarations or something, but uh, that's what I like. And I hear it's getting more popular, I hear. This is an important context for any time we talk about how Bone School hates TypeScript. Like, except for the types. Types are great. <laughs> he doesn't want to run a compiler except for when he's running TSC with no emit. Mm-hmm. So what I really want, like some months ago, I popped into the, the issues on TypeScript ESLint. And I was like, hey, can this work with JavaScript files? And in the comments, and and it was like, no. I don't know if that was you that responded to me, Josh, but someone was like, no. And <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I guess that's too bad because that's what I really want. I just want, I want to use TypeScript as a, as a linter, right? I don't want to use it as a compiler. I just want it to lint the, the, lint the types and, and something like TypeScript use lint. Maybe there's some way to make it work. I don't know, but that's what I want. Maybe you could write a, inverse compiler that compiles JavaScript with doc strings into TypeScript and then run TSLint on it or ESLint TypeScript on it. TypeScript ESLint. I cannot speak. That's actually a, a really good idea. I like that. I think that people get a lot of confusion, have a lot of confusion over what is a compiler versus a transpiler versus a linter. Mm-hmm. And the definition that I've personally been gestating is a compiler equals a transpiler plus a linter of some sort, where you're not using TypeScript for the transpiling part. You just want it for the linting part. And although TypeScript has historically focused on the compiling part and the linting part as kind of a unit together, it's very reasonable that in your use case, you're one of the very many, even major projects that don't want the transpiling, that it would actually get in the way. So yeah, I like that a lot. Someone should go do that. If only we knew a full-time open source developer. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, especially one who's well-funded, yeah. paid by everyone. <laughs> And familiar with ASTs and and linting. Anyhow. That does get into an interesting area. I don't know if we want to stay on the the book and TypeScript or meander a little bit, but you mentioned you shifted to being full-time open source. I know that's something a lot of people are kind of interested in as a model. How is that working for you? How are you funding yourself? And how's that going? You know, you just made a very key assumption, perhaps mistake, that a lot of people do. You assume that I am sufficiently funding myself. (laughs) which is not a correct assumption. I'm making very little money from this open source thing, but that's okay. I have a wife who has great health insurance that I can bum off of, but I am getting funded. I think a lot of people just want to dive into open source because they love it, but you need to prepare. You need to plan. I planned and prepared by getting active in a lot of open source projects, whether it's just contributing to TypeScript or other things, or actually taking on maintenance for TypeScript ESLint. You need to kind of justify yourself if people are going to pay you money You have to do a lot of work, kind of like an influencer, but I hope with less of a negative connotation that you need, you need to convince people that you're, you've got good things going on. You got to showcase your work, explain yourself. And so now that I've gotten used to just constantly spamming Twitter with links to my pull requests and whatnot, I'm actually really enjoying it. 
like I, I've always wanted to do the fun part of coding more than anything else. I like working with people, mentoring, being mentored, team management, etc. But what's always gotten me going is there are these really cool things you can do. You can write these linters that automatically lint or whatever. And then you can find bugs automatically. Like that's incredibly cool. So that's made me very happy. And I'm, I'm just happy to be able to do that as much as I can per day. It really seems like you're scratching your own itch, which is like always the true definition of happiness or the the exciting thing that I would love to, or when I think about open source, like it's because I want to contribute to the things that are helping me a lot and scratch my own itch. You know, it's the, it's the software I'm using and it helps me more, which I like a lot. Yeah. And if you will permit me to go a little meta here, I love watching the industry and seeing these trends of how things are evolving over time. I think one thing that y'all were debating recently was single page apps, aka day spas, whether that's good or bad. (laughs) And you see all these, all these really fun advancements that go sideways or forward or even backwards sometimes in the industry. But the overriding theme is that people are getting better and better at writing more code more rapidly with fewer bugs. So to be able to take part in that, to write a a rule in TypeScript BSLint that can catch bugs for people, that means that I feel like I'm helping advance the state of the industry. And even if I'm doing just this teeny little percentage, there are enough people impacted by my work that I, I can justify it as like a positive effect on society. That's just a weird, good feeling. I like it. Want to do more of that. So you said you're, you are not currently sustainably funding yourself on this. And I, I have gone back and forth and spent times where I thought, oh, this would be great to be a full-time open source developer or whatever. So like, I'm like self-support curious, but it sounds a lot like being an entrepreneur where you're like, I have this cool idea, I want to go do it. And then you find you're spending a lot of your time trying to get money, which most engineers don't like doing. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, are you envisioning this as like, is this a time boxed thing in your life? Is this something where you would like to ma- figure out how to make this sustainable indefinitely? Is this like an exploration with no, no sort of goals? I, I've, it feels like the type of thing where the reality of working on open source most of your time for most of us. And there are a few exceptions, right? Like Evan, you got funded to ridiculous amounts working on view because he had these ridiculous successes with that. Or like there are people who, who get to work on open source as a part of their company and they, you know, their project is successful enough. A company will just be like, your project contributes to the ecosystem in a way that broadly makes our company better. We will pay you a salary. Just keep working on your project. Vercel has been doing this with a lot of folks and there's pros and cons of that type of corporate thing. But like, the individual making their way just doing full-time open source seems to be a pretty rare model because it's so hard to get anywhere close to a tech salary. So I'm like, do you have benchmarks? I'm trying to get to this level of support or it's just like, where is this going for you? I'll let you know when I figure it out. Who knows when? Yeah, it's a great question. I would love to become like a Sindri Soros, Evan, you, et cetera, type of person who just makes a salary doing open source. I have this annoying mental block, though, where I feel bad splurging on myself, like going out for a nice dinner, if I know that this is based off of people giving me what could be misinterpreted as charity. I know that's wrong, but it's something I'm trying to get over. So right now for money, in addition to just living with a person who has a full-time job, I'm doing consulting on the side or gig economy style things like pull request reviews. But I think a goal that I could strive towards is to have enough sustainable backers so that I, I earn rather than say a hundred dollars or a couple hundred dollars a month, maybe like one or 2000 a month. 
for reference here, if you look at the salary of a software engineer, let's say that you're looking at a beginner salary, which is what, like three digits, like 100, 100 bucks an hour, some situation, like 50 to 100 an hour, just to make the math easy. Let's say $50 an hour, which is like a really nice salary for a lot of people. In order to get yourself into the top, I think it's like five or 10 or it's like some single digit percentage of GitHub sponsors, that's your monthly intake. Like five or $10 a month on GitHub sponsors is a pretty impressive amount, honestly. Like most people don't get all that much. So it's a very different kind of economy talking about your full-time job where people can get two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 a year after a decade of experience versus GitHub sponsors where a percent of a percent make minimum wage. But yeah, I think to speak to the last point, the company sponsorship full-time is very interesting and appealing. And if for a seller, someone wants to talk to me about it, just pay me to do my open source. I'd love to hear it. Happy to promote your company. But one of the reasons why I love doing open source full-time is that I get to work on the projects that I get to work on. If there's some cool little thing that I want to do, if let's say I want to work on a game engine specifically dedicated to ripping off old Nintendo games, <laughs> which I plan on continuing later this year, I don't think you know Vercel is going to be too thrilled to be paying me a wage for that. So we'll see. As a very specific example, I know pulled from your past, you know, you've you've talked about that in conference talks before, and that's that's wonderful. Getting what was it like a I don't know a cease I don't know if cease and desist is the right terminology, but that is yeah. I bring it up once in a while because I think it's hilarious. Nintendo sent me a DMCA notice for a Mario ripoff I made, <laughs> but I think there's also a lot of joy. I've been reading a lot about managing stress and taking time off of your work to make yourself happy because that's a thing I need to be better at. And there's all sorts of research showing that when you let people spend not just 20% time, but a significant portion of their time as they need it to do fun projects, they come back invigorated and juiced to do more stuff with all sorts of great ideas. And I want to be able to rapidly, wildly fluctuate between super productivity on TypeScript PS Lint or whatnot and the stupid meta side projects that I've got going on. So I'm in that situation where I, in for the past, I don't know, five years or so, I've been employed by a company to work on open source. And I like it. I prefer to work in open source. That's, you know, I like working async. I like working with people across the, the globe on community projects. And it is community projects. It's not like, oh, our company owns this open source project and we're just going to run it like a normal product that, you know, it's community open source. And so I really love that. But I don't do it for fun anymore. I don't, you know, at the end of the day, I'm done. I don't go and, and hack on some sort of cool project. Usually the things that I do think of that I need to scratch my own itch, I can rationalize them. So if I need to build a new little tool for something to help my day job, I'll go and do that on the clock, not for fun after work. I'll do other things after work and play Minecraft or something. But like, it really kind of changes your... I think I was ready for it. I think I got kind of burnt out on just kind of working all day and then working at night on the open source stuff. So I think it, it works for me. It may not work for others, but you can do it. And I'd, I'd recommend giving it a shot if you can find a, a company who's, who's invested in, like, especially a community-owned open source project. Like, I don't know, Kubernetes, something like that. 
it's awesome that you've you've found that and had it for so long that there is a company out there that's willing to spend so much because they've recognized the value of open source. It really is super valuable, incredibly, almost immeasurably valuable to have sustainably funded popular open source projects like what I'm imagining you're working on. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, certain companies will base their software as a service on some sort of foundation-owned project and it's in their best interests to make sure that project is healthy and moving forward. That's where you get in. So if they wanted to pay me to convert it to TypeScript, that would be okay with you? I suppose, but so the problem with that is it's still a community project and we all have to agree. You can't be a company contributing to this community project and say, well, we want this thing. Let's ram it through. You can't really do that. Maybe they'd pay you to build that reverse compilation so that they could run linting on it. Right. But if you, if Josh, if you came in to the project <laughs> and wanted to do that, I would say no, because I don't want that. And so I would block any sort of PR. So that's the challenge. Like you can't be a company and companies are kind of, can be kind of weird about it and feel like, well, what's the point if we don't have total control over this thing? And it's, it's how you have to work. You have to put your people on it and trust that your people can work with others and, and get done what needs to get done. I came at you with a troll and you countered with a very savvy, insightful comment on the, the mechanisms of companies sponsoring open source that I, I strongly agree with, that it needs to be a community-run project to be called a community project. Like The joy and a lot of the benefit is that you have a large group of people contributing and coming to decisions by consensus, not from some dictation by a company sponsor. That's really important. Yeah, yeah. I don't really have that other experience. I don't have, I never worked for Microsoft on TypeScript, for example. So I don't know what it's like to have, I'm, I'm sure there's some sort of, I guess, Daniel is the, the product owner or something, like kind of decides what happens, right? So like, do, I haven't had that experience of, like having my boss actually be on the open source project. Actually, that's probably going to change. But anyhow, like, I think it's a different dynamic, especially if you, you have total copyright ownership of the project. All right, let's take a break here. But before we do, I just want to bring us back around to the book, Learning TypeScript, and just mention that I, I did get to preview it before it came out. And it's a fantastic book that has, that breaks things down really well. Josh, just from having met you before and heard you speak several times, I read it in your voice as I was going through it. It was in your calm voice explaining to me these different concepts and the way that you broke things down, I thought was really beneficial as someone who's been doing TypeScript for a long time. Like it seemed like a really good way to introduce a JavaScript developer to it. So I just, I just wanted to congratulate you on that and for shipping it this week. That's wonderful. And um, we're going to take a break now, but when we come back, we will dig into more about what Josh has been working on. You mentioned that you contribute to a project, TypeScript ESLint. Do you want to tell us, start off by telling us what that is? Sure. It is the greatest open source SEO play in history. <laughs> Our name includes TypeScript and ESLint, two of the most popular open source projects. 
but we are not either of those things. We are the bridge that lets you run ESLint on TypeScript, which involves, for the most part, most popularly, two things. One is that we provide a set of rules for ESLint. For those who haven't used ESLint or linters, a linters come with a bunch of rules that scan for really common code issues, like unused variables, or if your organization has a style guide violation to that style guide. We provide a bunch of custom ESLint rules for TypeScript-specific things. Like if you, say, use a for in loop over an array, which is actually like bad JavaScript practice. Because we have the guarantee you're running on TypeScript code, we can let you know, hey, we found the type of this thing. Don't do that. And then we also are a parser, which allows ESLint to parse in TypeScript syntax. ESLint by default uses just vanilla regular JavaScript syntax and wouldn't recognize TypeScript things like type annotations or interfaces. At least not till that JavaScript proposal hits stage four of DC39, <laughs> which will probably be years. So between those two things, we've become kind of the de facto standard for linting TypeScript code in ESLint. So where did the TypeScript ESLint originate? So I know that some time ago, when people wanted to lint their TypeScript, they would use TSLint, which was a Palantir project. And at some point, they abandoned it, or I don't know the story. Do you know the story? Who decided to make TypeScript ESLint, and how did that, how did that all come to play? It's a, a great question, statement. I actually know, I'm not clear on the origins, technically, of TypeScript ESLint. I know, I think, I think James Henry started it. There are a few different efforts to create some similar project. Now the maintainer crew is James Henry, Brad Zacker, a person whose real name I don't know and never seen a photo of, an enigma called Armano2 and myself. TSLint, yes, was the linter for TypeScript. It took a very different strategy from TSESLint. Instead of working on top of ESLint, which allows it to reuse a lot of the infrastructure and rules such as the React hooks rules that are very good and popular, it is a complete re-implementation, a separate project specifically for TypeScript. I should say was because it was archived in 2019 or some similar year. I actually was a maintainer on TSLint when it was killed. I helped kill it. I wrote TSLint to ESLint config, which converts your TSLint config to ESLint, and actually felt a lot of joy in killing my old, the first project, major project I'd maintained. Two issues with Palantir being the corporate sponsor of a project, although they did a good job of not pushing any corporate interests or whatnot. The name Palantir has a lot of negative associations, especially since 2016, Trump got elected and Palantir was what many believe to be the wrong side of history. And there was a great moment where, uh, I'm not going to name names, but some well-known JavaScript community member started posting TSLint brought to you by fascists on the GitHub issues page, which was weird for me since I have never associated with Palantir. Anyway, the second issue was that Palantir is a corporate sponsor, and they are a sole sponsor, whereas ESLint is much more community-run and funded. So ESLint was getting features at a much more rapid pace. In general, also, why would you have two linters? That's a lot of maintenance burden. Every time one linter got a feature, normally ESLint, the other one would have to scramble to get it to. If you had React plugin or JSX accessibility or Angular lint rules or whatnot, you then have to implement it in the other. So now TypeScript ESLint, as of, I forget if it was 2020 or 2019 or 2018, some year, several years ago now, took over from TSLint and has all the features that you would expect from a modern linter, plus the ability to use TypeScript-specific type information, which actually gives it a, a huge leg up in power over just vanilla ESLint rules. We can look at your code, understand your types, 
whether it's JS code with a check JS, allow JS, or TypeScript itself. And we can make really good informed decisions on the code and give you really nice, specific, powerful editor complaint squigglies as a result. Wait, so you said you can do the JavaScript? Because when I tried that, it was like not working. We have a lot of documentation debt, mm. I would call it. And part of fixing documentation debt means you often find bugs in your own code. So there's no reason theologically, or to my knowledge architecturally, why you couldn't use TypeScript ESLint on vanilla JS code. But I don't want to be too certain about whether it's currently advisable or doable today. You heard it here first. Should figure that out. I think it had something to do with the file name extension. It was like, oh, that's not a TypeScript file. I'm not going to lint it. Have you just tried converting to TypeScript? <laughs> no. <laughs> we should support that use case. I almost clicked the drum roll. But um, we are a, how do I phrase this? Despite being the way that people lint their TypeScript code, I would still consider us a somewhat young to teenager age project in that we're still figuring out a lot of the major use cases. One of the big things that we just haven't had the time yet to really solidly figure out is the JavaScript story. How do you use the TypeScript type checker APIs in a JavaScript file properly? Do we just not support it? So it, it wouldn't surprise me if we're like 99% of the way there and that 1% is like some if statement that throws an error or some such. The other thing is performance. The single biggest reason why people haven't moved to us or complain when they do is that TSLint used to take, let's say, 10 seconds and now it takes two minutes. Uh, the vast majority of that is misconfiguration, which means we need to do a better job of getting people to configure things the right way. But then also there are some difficulties. ESLint was not architectured originally for a linter that has awareness of other files. It originally was made, you just lint one file at a time for performance. And kind of backdooring the TypeScript type checker into there is not an easy task. What kind of things are you doing with that? Why would the linter need to look at other files? I'll give you two examples. Okay. The common use case of just running ESLint on the command line, and then also the editor use case. Because those are two of the most common ways that you would run ESLint and also therefore run TypeScript ESLint. On the command line, you need to have the full information of the TypeScript type checker in order to use type system type API informed rules. Let's say you have a rule that lets you know if you create a promise and then don't try catch or dot catch it. So that you might have a floating error. We call this no floating promises. It's my favorite rule. I love it. It's my baby. In order to get that, you then have to when ESLint starts or the first rule requests the type checker that TypeScript provides, you then have to create a new instance of the type checker and then ask for the type of that node in that particular file, which means now TypeScript has to fully understand all your files. And if you are a large code base with, let's say, thousands of node modules dependencies that link to each other and you have like hundreds or whatever of your files, that is a shocking slowdown. So we can be clever, we can try to reuse information, try to fine-tune TypeScript for you, but it's still a slower thing than just ESLint looking at code hmm. on its own. Also, if you have an editor and you want real-time feedback, we need to be able to create a persistent TypeScript instance. We don't want to have to completely reanalyze everything every time. And there are APIs in TypeScript for that, but it is still you have to configure those manually. And then you have to know which list of files to look at. If they change, you have to tell TypeScript about that and so on and so forth. So it's fun, but also really challenging. One question I have is kind of around what you were saying, where you build on top of it, of ESLint to allow it to understand TypeScript files. I guess what I'm trying to ask is what 
you mentioned that you have to that you allow for TypeScript and like the analyzation of TypeScript. Is that like by changing out what abstract syntax tree ESLint is actually using? Is that how it works? Or can you explain that? So I like to start ASTs or abstract syntax trees explanations with what is AST? Because that acronym, I think, inspires fear yes. more than most other acronyms in people. It's a representation of your code. It's saying you have a file and in the file, there are these whatever statements, declarations, let's say functions. And then let's say you have a function that has a name and so on. So the AST is a representation of that structure. It's abstract, meaning it could have white space moved around. It's, it's not the actual code itself. Syntax, description of your syntax, and tree in that parts of it have children. A function has, let's say, a body and a name and a parameter list, like a tree. So ESLint natively, I always forget which one it uses, if it's ESTree or some other similar name. That syntax, there is a parser that comes with ESLint, which takes in your text be it JavaScript file or in-memory string or whatever, and then generates a tree. And now this is where TypeScript's famous marketing slogan, TypeScript, a superset of JavaScript, comes into play. TypeScript adds new syntax. So we have a parser, and I always forget how it works on the inside. I've been focusing on documentation mostly, but I want to say it actually uses TypeScript's parser and then converts the result into a format recognizable by ESLint. The TypeScript parser and the built-in ESLint parser use different formats to represent your code. They use like different names for nodes, different tree structures, sometimes it's very different. So an ESLint rule might not be able to work on the TypeScript AST. It might be looking for, let's say, method definitions, and then TypeScript might call it like a property or, or some like different nomenclature like that. So really there are three ASTs. There's the TypeScript AST, the ESLint AST, and then the TypeScript ESLint AST, which aligns to the ESLint AST and adds in TypeScript features. And this is why when someone asks me what TypeScript ESLint is, I start with the, oh, it adds rules explanation mm -hmm. because it gets kind of hard to keep track on the inside. So it's essentially just like an adapter between TypeScript and ESLint, right? It's a very good way of putting it that I will steal. Thank you. So I feel like there's a couple directions we can go down here. So we can talk about the, the project and the project maturity. That is an interesting area to explore. And we could talk more about that adaptation piece and how does that actually work like is there you just said you're you're not as deeply into the internals right now so maybe that's not a productive place to go looking at the project maturity can you talk a little bit about the team like how big is this community how many folks are working on this if somebody wants to get involved how would they get involved oh i would love it if someone wants to get involved we just went through a big overhaul of our issue and pull request templates we started using github issue forms which have been wonderful we started enforcing that people provide us reproductions of their issues rather than it's broke, please fix the most common open source issue to be closed. The maintenance team is actually really well staffed right now. I think this might be the highest it's been in a while slash ever. So what we're focusing now is on documentation and the interactive website. If you want to go to typescript-eslint.io in your browsers, dear listener, you will find a DocuSaurus website. Love DocuSaurus, the static docs generator. And it's got a whole list of all of our rules with an interactive playground, kind of similar to the TypeScript playground, but geared towards showing you lint complaints. When I say it's not an, I don't know the right phrasing here. It's not an end stage, like peak of project. It's still relatively early. What I mean is we are still figuring out some of the major architectural things. Most of them are resolved, but like the performance is, is a big one. 
I think another thing we're trying to figure out is how do we show ourselves as really useful? What are the banner headline rules we can provide? I mentioned no foreign array and no floating promises as like really key motivators for why you should use us. We also have a set of rules around anys, which is the TypeScript type that lets you just YOLO it, which is not good for type safety. We have a bunch of rules around misusing any, letting that creep in, but there are very few rules on that line that really you can point to and say, this will find issues in your code. We strongly recommend you enable it, otherwise you're not as good of a project, or maybe some more friendly, welcoming term than that. Once we've got the documentation down, I think the performance and the banner headline rules are really two things that I want us to really nail down before we can really consider ourselves a fully happy where we are in the world project. To be clear, we are very mature. Like you, you have been able to use us stably for years. It is not like the project is some newcomer. It's established. It works well. There are very few crashes in production, and most of those are caused by external dependencies. In fact, most of our issues are for our bugs are people who use some other plugin, and then the call stack includes us, and then they complain to us. So we send them somewhere else, which is great. Speaking about uh, other plugins, you mentioned that certain type or certain ESLint rules or rules and plugins may not work with the TypeScript ESLint parser. Is that right? Oh, I'm sorry. I did not mean to say or imply that. They would not work if you tried to use the TypeScript AST natively, but because you are instead meant to use TypeScript ESLint's parser, they do work. So any plugin you would use, my favorites are the accessibility JSX one, JSX A11Y, React, rules and hooks, that type of stuff, ng-lint, the angular linting, that all works with TypeScript code because of TypeScript ESLints. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pleased. It's nice. The ecosystem can move forward because we don't have two linters to maintain, and the React team isn't going to keep getting pestered by people to write TSLint rules of hooks the way they used to. Yeah, there's some really cool rules out there that are extremely helpful. You mentioned the React ones. I'm thinking specifically of like the... Oh, I don't know the na- the actual names of the rules, but like the one that tells me if I'm missing dependencies in my like use memo or use effect hooks, like those, those are really cool being able to like analyze the code down to that. Cause it really does help me, you know, just make sure that I keep that list up to date or keep that together. And then you mentioned a couple of your favorite rules, like what the no floating promises one is a good one. I do really like the no explicit any, like I love those because whenever I foolishly want to use any i have to like disable that with like a yes lint disable next line and then usually give, i give a reason as to why so it's like called out this is why i'm doing it but there are also some rules that are annoying to me i think that they're probably more stylistic rules and I, i'm curious if you have any rules that uh you don't like oh man i'm so glad you brought this up there's such a good discussion to be had i promise i will answer your question as asked are the rules i don't like slash opinions on stylistic but first i will say I'm commanding the audience, the listeners, do not use ESLint for formatting. That is not what it is built for. <laughs> None of the maintenance teams of linters want, at least in the JavaScript space that I know of, want you to use ESLint for formatting. The ESLint team has stopped adding new formatting rules, and they recommend you use a separate tool such as Prettier. By formatting, I mean just white space, like rules that only care about white space, putting things on a new line versus the same, having a space before, after parentheses or not, stuff like that. And the reason why is ESLint is, again, not architecturally built for that. ESLint is made to detect styles issues, likely bugs, etc. 
But something like Prettier, which is specifically tailored to massaging your white space, is much faster and much more reliable. It'll catch many more edge cases and have far fewer bugs in white space formatting. So highly recommend use Prettier. I don't even recommend people use their plugins that let you run Prettier as ESLint rules. It's just slower that way. Highly recommend keeping them separate. So that's one classification of rules to just shove off. Don't. And then you have these annoying rules that honestly gave ESLint and other linters a bad name and why a lot of people don't like ESLint. Why is it yelling at me? Why is my code not billing? The worst is like some projects like Create React App would block your local development yes. on like an unused variable. Who wants that? That's incredibly annoying. It's so infuriating. I don't even let my Next.js builds be blocked on TypeScript errors. Like that's a separate part of CI for me. I enable TypeScript.ignore build errors or whatever the flag is. So yeah, highly recommend. If the lint rule is being enabled, you are not the lint whatever, like... At its beck and call. It is at your beck and call. You are in control here. Disable the rule, like Nick was saying, with an inline disable comment or in your config rules list too. So that's my rant. That raises an interesting, to me at least, uh, philosophical question around like how to think about what lints to use, what rules to use, when to create a custom rule. I've been thinking a lot about how do we use this as one of the tools in our tool chest to kind of eliminate classes of problems and put like quality ratchets into our code that keep us from backsliding on things that have caused problems before. But I'd be curious how you think about that. Like, how do you decide which rules you want to use and when do you decide to implement a new rule? I love it. I want to speak in probabilities of certainty. Now, TypeScript will give you an error if it is, let's say, 99.9% you are wrong, certain you're wrong. If you, let's say, declare a variable to be a string and then give it a number, there are code cases where that's reasonable, where the number might coincidentally work. But like the vast majority of the time, TypeScript's bar of 99, whatever, 9% is correct. I consider lint rules to be ones that you should like give the angry squigglies on, depending on the project and the team familiarity with JavaScript or TypeScript and the linter. Maybe you'd want to say, turn on things that are 80 or 90% certain as like you should probably do this like a, a, a even though typescript has a flag for this we recommend people use our lint rule for no unused variables it's more configurable like the vast majority of the time unused variable is just a sign that you should remove it to simplify your code or maybe that you're forgetting to pass something in somewhere so for stylistic rules things like naming not huge that you should really go gung-ho on this some people even like sorting object properties i personally do it but I've never been on a team where I would think that politically appropriate. I don't think it's worth the effort, the pain for many. I'd say for the TypeScript ESLint project, our core built-in rule set is stuff that we think affects maybe 80 or 90% of TypeScript users. Things like no floating of promises, it might not be applicable for all projects, which is why ESLint lets you opt into rules and opt out of them. But for the most part, that's relevant. And I'd say if you think that maybe... 60 or 70% of the time, some particular classification of thing is wrong. Maybe you have a, I don't know, a company style that you should always declare functions with a particular, I don't know, method for turn, whatever, whatever it is. Like maybe just write a custom lint rule for yourself. I think it's really hard to answer that question with more specificity because a solo developer working on a passion project where they only want to catch real bugs versus an enterprise team that has extreme SLAs to adhere to have very different needs and wants for their linting experience. Yeah, I like the probabilities one because like a place where I found us using lints a lot is like 
This is not necessarily wrong, but we have seen this pattern often lead to buggy code or code that does not behave as people expect it to. And so it's not necessarily <laughs> like saying your code is broken. It's more saying this is a likely maintenance problem. I was going to mention that, first off, I love tools like this because they kind of highlight the power that you can have when you're, when you are just really looking at an AST and parsing it. And like, there's so much power that you can get from that in what you want to do in this case, you know, warning or erroring about things. And I, I love that, like, it makes it really easy to, to dive right in and make like your own custom rules for it and stuff. Like it just feels like a superpower being able to like write code about your code that understands your code. And I love that. One idea that I've had as like not necessarily an ESLint or TypeScript ESLint extension or custom rule, but like just like a an AST Walker like script would be one that just goes through and looks for all of the the custom like ESLint disable comments that I add and then just like puts up, you know, you've used no shadow 472 times. Maybe you should just like add that to your <laughs> your config. I call out no shadow because that's the one that I think that I probably <laughs> override the most because I just, you know, I want to destructure something and then put it as like a, a shorthand object syntax on something else. And I don't want to care about if it's declared in an upper scope. That's like my biggest gripe right now. It seems like there should be a rule that detects disabling of rules. I know there's probably a flag on the command line that will throw an error if you do that. But I don't know about like just printing a warning that, hey, you're disabling too much stuff, man. Do something else. I want it in that voice too. Yeah. Maybe an ESLint lint. So there is actually an ESLint rule that requires that you provide an explanation for rules. There's also a type 2 ESLint rule that, that prevents you. We shouldn't say prevents. I shouldn't say prevent because nothing is, you know, a completely preventable. You can always disable these disabled rules, but flags issues of using TypeScript pragmas or suppression comments. So if you want to say like TS expect error, then you have to have an ESLint disable no TS expect error, which then needs a reasoning. And yeah, I actually really like that idea, giving you like a scorecard of, hey, whatever, no shadowed, maybe you should turn that off. Yeah. I really like that. Should file a feature request. Okay. One of the, I think maybe two contributions, very few, that I've done to ESLint itself was I added in a command line flag. I forget what it is now, embarrassingly, but it's it lets you know if you have an unused disable, which I think is fantastic. I really like that idea. Oh yeah. That we shouldn't just leave these things floating around, people copy and paste all the time. Yeah. That's like a huge thing that I comment about in pull requests. Is like, is this rule required anymore? Like they do kind of stick out, but that seems like it should be enabled by default. But that would be great. I will check that out because that would be very useful because I've got a ton of those things. But, you know, instead of a disable, you know, there's those T uh, TypeScript, there's TS ignore, there's TS expect error. If those ESLint disabling comments were more like TS expect error, you know, that seems like that would work a little better because I always use TS expect error whenever I can. I pretty much never use TS ignore, right? That's a great idea. I'm glad I had it. Somebody else probably did too. Yeah. I uh, report unused disabled directives. I just, just looked it up. So I actually, I feel like a feel like an ego moment for myself is coming on here. I implemented TypeScript's expect error, TS expect error directive, because I think that why would you want to leave a TS ignore in? Why would, you, there's no need if it doesn't. 
And there are some like edge cases where like if you're running with different types of versions or something, but like for the most part, you should really just not let yourself ignore things unnecessarily. And yeah, I have strong opinions that we should have as few angry, annoying, ugly, disabled comments as possible. I am also of the opinion that VS Code and other editors should default to showing ESLint's squigglies and complaints in a noticeably different way than compiler complaints, the difference between a compiler and a linter here, because I've seen so many people get confused and angry at TypeScript for like no shadow or something, where they think that like TypeScript is blocking their builds because they have an unused variable or the wrong variable name or something. Very much not TypeScript's fault there because it's both of them have red squigglies by default. So I also added the option to the VS Code ESLint extension to downgrade all warnings or to mess around with your severities. Nice. That is useful. Josh, we talked about your book and kind of learning TypeScript in the first section. And then we talked about code that learns about your code sort of in the the second section about TypeScript ESLint. And so like, let's take a step back from that and kind of tie them together, talking about how you actually teach in a way that that's a good way for actually learning things. I don't know if I could have said that any worse, but (laughs) take it away. No, I actually like the way you said that. I think there are a few really good strategies for teaching that I've only really started to learn the last few years. One is that you can't introduce a whole bunch of stuff at the same time. You have to introduce one major concept at most, ideally, maybe two if you really need at at a time. The other is that the language is super important. I've learned to detest when documentation says things like, it's easy to, simply, just... (laughs) There are very few contexts where those phrases, especially simply, are appropriate. If someone is a complete newcomer, or maybe they're just slightly incorrect in their understanding, you tell them something is simple or easy. Now they feel like you're being a jerk to them and that like they're losing, that they're dumb or something. It really does not help with the imposter syndrome. So that's important. I think clarity is really key and something that a lot of lint rules have struggled with. The original error message for the no floating promises lint rule was something around the lines of promises must be handled appropriately. What is that? What does that mean? What is handled? (laughs) What is appropriately? What is going on? Now it's something like promises must be caught with a try catch or dot catch or some such. That's so much more helpful. Yeah. And that really helps with the everyone hating on ES lint for giving you useless spew. Like most of the time, if you have a a well-configured ES lint config, you might be wrong. And actually, TypeScript as a language also has put a lot of work in. The team has put a lot of work into improving the error messages there. It's some of the most popular things for external contributors like me to send in. Mm -hmm. The thing that I've really come to appreciate and love about teaching code is using kind of a mathematical basis for how you introduce topics. Uh, We've already talked about trees, so we might as well talk about graph theory. How do you figure out what order to teach things in? Well, you can represent each topic as a circle or a node, as graphically we would call it. And then you make lines between those circles called edges. And then you do a graph search to figure out what comes first. You can't teach interfaces in TypeScript before you teach the concept of what is a type annotation, what is a shape, and 
for those things to be taught, you have to explain why are type annotations, why are types important in JavaScript? Well, you see, someone in 94 or whatever took 10 days to design the thing, et cetera, et cetera. So I've really come to love using graph theory and, and flow kind of analysis, how much information can be spread through the graph to figure out what order to teach in. Mm -hmm. And this is all sounding very fancy and mathematical, but at the end of the day, you're just trying to order things in a way that you only have to introduce one topic at a time. That's tough as someone who's well-versed in a, in a language or a technology where you have to kind of, what is it, the curse of knowledge or something, where you're unable to look at things from the way somebody who knows nothing would. And so you may find it difficult to make that graph and go backwards and see, okay, what do I need to know? What are my assumptions that the reader knows? And so what necessarily comes before what? And that's tough to do. Yeah, for sure. I think good education content needs to be continuously iterated on with feedback. If you look at, say, Dan Abramov, who's currently tweeting a bunch of beta draft articles for the React use effect documentation, that stuff is getting rewritten like on a daily or weekly basis because there's all this nuance that people are discovering that wasn't in there originally. It's hard, yeah. Yeah, I used to to do a lot of the same workshops kind of over and over, like teaching JavaScript, TypeScript, and Dojo. And I really tried to pay attention to what seemingly landed better, like what descriptions of things landed better in one class and then tried to reapply that in another class. But one thing that I really took out of that that I think still applies to everything I try and teach today is like, I will oftentimes just repeat myself, but in a different inflection or a different from a try and do from a slightly different perspective, just to give you of like, you know, this is the basic way or th this is a way to think about it. But then if you think about it, like at a slightly different angle, you just get a better perspective of both and just kind of bringing that depth to it a little bit. A lot of people struggle, myself included, I think, with a lot of content online that does not take that strategy. And I really appreciate you saying that because the brain either gets it sometimes or sometimes just doesn't. You need a different way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are there any particular topics you found you really drastically changed your approach on? Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, not that it would apply to really any, <laughs> any modern concept today, but just the way that I would teach like Dojo's pub sub and the way that that, that worked. I just remember specifically like completely revamping the way that I talked about that. And it was much more beneficial because it was easier for me to go through it. And it was easier. I think it was much more well understood, but also like that's kind of where interactive examples or like assignments, like that's where they really come in to be valuable too, because they're just another perspective on it. And they're the, the more hands-on applicable one that you can then take and build on from there. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest issues with the book format. Mm -hmm. Speaking as someone who just made a book, like the book is inherently hard to do an interactive example on, especially for a computer-based thing. In the Learning TypeScript book, I gave up on that. There were no interactive projects in the book itself, just links to learningtypescript.com, which has most of those projects filled out and is pending for a couple chapters that I will have done soon. I really love Execute Program for that. It is a great website. I want to say Gary Bernard makes it. It's just all these really fantastic hands-on examples and projects, which are, I think, one of the best ways to learn. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, I think one of the good measures of whether you've successfully learned a topic is can you teach someone who doesn't understand the foundations of that topic the thing? Like, could you 
in my case, could I explain TypeScript to my mother who does not understand these things or one of my non-technical, like very does not use computers friends? And can you explain it in a way that makes sense to them, even though they don't have the time or interest, let's say, to learn <laughs> what is even a programming language in the first place? Yeah. It's hard. You're going to lose them if you go back to 94 and the, the 10 days story <laughs> pretty quick. Yeah. Let me tell you about the bits here and the bytes. <laughs> my life hack is to submit talks for topics I know nothing about. Mm -hmm. Conference-driven development. Right. And then be forced to learn well enough that I can talk about it to other people. That's how I got into TSConf. <laughs> Just kidding. That is stressful, though, at the same time, because then you actually have to learn that. And that directly goes against my uh, proclivity to procrastination. <laughs> when It's like three days before, and I'm like, what are we going to talk about again? I think low-key, perhaps a lot of improvisational style speakers are benefited, perhaps intentionally, by this strategy. Yeah. But I also think there's a lot of joy in watching people learn things. And that's a conference talk I really wish more folks were able to do, or at least more confident in. Like, I would love to go to an Angular conference, having not worked in Angular since 1x, and just learn all these things. Like, I love dependency injection. I would love to learn what does Angular do for it, you know? Mm -hmm. I have never used Ember, ever. But I went to EmberConf in 2016, and it was super beneficial. Have you used Ember since? Nope. That might be upsetting for some to hear. <laughs> well, cool. Josh, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about your transition into kind of more open source development, uh, contracting, and working on TypeScript ES Lint. And of course, the book that you just had come out this week, Learning TypeScript. Is there anything that you want to say or pitch before we take off for today? Several things. First of all, thank you for having me on the show. I'm a longtime listener, first time guest. I enjoyed this tremendously. It's, it's cool to see the, the other side of things. Absolutely. You're welcome back. We'll have to, to catch up again about how things have been going. Yes. When I'm a world famous author with only positive glowing Amazon reviews, I'll let you know how that feels. <laughs> I also want to shout out TypeScript ES Lint. It's a great project. I also do a bunch of other open source stuff. So check me out on Twitter and such. Give me money, buy my book, like and subscribe, all those good things. That's all. Thanks. Thank you. We'll have links in the show notes and we will catch you next time. Okay, real talk. How freaky was K-Ball's voice on this episode? I did not see that coming. Tweet about it and tag JS Party FM if it creeped you out. Enough tweets and we will ban Creepy K-Ball from the podcast. Now is the time to subscribe. If you haven't already, head to jsparty.fm for all the ways. And if you're a longtime JS Party listener, share the show with a friend. It's the best way to pay it forward and spread the love. Also, check out Changelog++. That is our membership program with a bunch of perks support our work, make the ads disappear, and hey, we just added a free pack of stickers to everyone who joins. Learn about it at changelog.com plus plus. Thanks again to Fastly for CDNing for us, to the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder for the always fresh beats, and to you for hanging out. We appreciate it. That's it. This show is done. We'll talk to you again next week.